I'm lead pastor Noel Petras, and welcome to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a home in the family of God, or feel called to be a part of a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in the Veterans Memorial Building at 324 North Cahuilla Avenue. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or find us on social media. Thanks for listening. Hey, my question to get us started this morning is, is, have you ever thought or do you ever think or how often do you think about what life after death is like? I was thinking this week as we come to this passage about resurrection, I was thinking about the the Egyptian culture. I don't know if anyone did this when they were in grade school, but um, when I was in sixth grade, I had a teacher who was like known for the the unit, the history unit on on um, ancient Egypt, <clears throat> and we would like turn our classroom into like an Egyptian tomb. And I remember one thing about the Egyptians is that they were really into the afterlife. And I wonder, do you think much about the afterlife? Uh, when I was in uh, fourth grade, my teacher, Mr. Johnson, uh, would tease a buddy and I. He, he would say to us, hey, guys, I'm worried for you because if there's no football in heaven, you're not going, are you? It, ma- it makes you think. I was wondering if you could turn to the person next to you and tell you, what do you think of when you think of that thing that you're not going if it's not there? Go ahead. You can talk. Maybe you're afraid to say it out loud. In any event, this passage today is about life after death. It's about the afterlife, eternity, resurrection. And it's about Jesus' promise of the resurrection. The resurrection not just of himself, but the resurrection of all of us who put our faith in him, the resurrection of the dead. So let's jump in, verse 23. It says that that same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. So when is this story taking place? It's taking place on the same day that the Pharisees and the Herodians had just come to Jesus with their own question, a trap question. You'll remember that question was about taxes. So here we have it, death and taxes. Two certainties of life, according to Benjamin Franklin, at least that's what I learned, that that phrase was attributed to the great American constitutional author, Ben Franklin. We can all count on the certainty of death and taxes. So it seems that these religious leaders are coming to Jesus with life's biggest questions. So who are these Sadducees? I I don't know if you remember, but we did encounter these Sadducees just a few sections back. The, uh, The Sadducees are also known as the sophisticated. They were Hellenistic, meaning they were in love with Greek culture. They were collaborators with Roman power. They were pleasure loving, wealthy, aristocratic leaders. And uh, some of their beliefs are revealed in the next phrase. It says, that same day, the Sadducees, 
who say there is no resurrection come to Jesus with a question. So what do the Sadducees believe about the resurrection? Well, they believe that there is no resurrection. If you want to learn more about the Sadducees, you can go to Acts 23.8, but this is what it says. It says, it says there that the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. We learned that in this passage. And that there are neither angels nor spirits. So not only do the Sadducees believe that there's no resurrection, they also believe there's no angels and there's no spirits. They're deniers of the supernatural. They're the modernists of their day. And to them, the idea of having resurrected bodies just doesn't make any rational sense. It's absurd. And they're coming to Jesus with this question about a woman married seven times, and who is she going to be married to in the resurrection? What they're trying to communicate is, Jesus, your idea of resurrection is really stupid. This won't work. So the Sadducees want to know, Jesus, uh, do, you, do you teach that there is a resurrection? I think they know the answer to this question. But again, they're, they're mocking his idea. And so they bring this story about a marriage, but it's not really a story about marriage. And today's sermon is, is a little bit about marriage, but it's not really a sermon about marriage. You could breathe a deep sigh of relief. Today's life, or today's message, is about the life we were created for. Eternal life with God. Eternal union with the everlasting God. So the biggest chunk of this text, it's comprised of the Sadducees' bloviating question which takes up verses 24 through 28 in the passage. And as we listen in, we'll see that their question, it's not really a question, it's a statement of their opinion about the resurrection and why the resurrection doesn't make any sense. So let's take a look at the Sadducees' question. Verse 24, Teacher, they said, Moses told us, if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. And finally, the woman died. Now then, they asked Jesus, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Notice how they start their story. What do they say? Moses told us. Moses told us. See, the the Sadducees only accepted the writings of Moses. To them, the Hebrew Bible consisted only of the first five books. We know that as the Pentateuch or the Torah. To them, only the books or the writings of Moses were divinely inspired, were authoritative for living. Now, some have called these Sadducees theologically conservative, but it's probably more accurate to call them theologically reductionistic. What I mean by that is they boiled down the Old Testament teachings to a fault, eliminating the prophets and the wisdom literature. All they accepted as divinely inspired were the first five books, the writings of Moses. And so they start their story by saying, Moses told us. So of course, 
They refer to Deuteronomy 25, a law of Moses known as the law of Leviterate, I'm sorry, Leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. I did not say that out loud enough times before I came in this morning. Levirate marriage, leveret marriage. The law reads, anyways, that uh, if um, that a brother-in-law must marry his brother's widow and conceive a son with her. So, if a woman's husband dies, it's the responsibility of the brother-in-law to step in, marry this woman, so that his brother's lineage can carry on. So, this was, seems kind of weird to us in our culture. But in in this culture, this would have been a way of preserving both the life of the widow and the lineage of the brother. In the mind of the Sadducees, it's the perfect way for them to attack the irrational concept of the resurrection. And so their story is outlandish. I mean, have you ever done this, right? We tell outlandish stories, the kind of stories that are like, I walked uphill both ways. You know what I'm saying, through the snow. Yesterday, I said something like, that's like a half mile away. You know, it's probably, I don't know, a half a quarter mile away. But anyways, you get what I'm saying. You've probably exaggerated before as well. This story is totally extreme. In fact, it's improbable, maybe even impossible. A story with two brothers would have been plenty funny on its own. A story with seven brothers is clearly meant to mock Jesus' idea of the resurrection. So Jesus who knows everything, knows the heart behind the question. He knows the statement that they're making about the resurrection that's behind their question. And so he responds, verse 29, it says, Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. This is very direct from Jesus. He's so often indirect, and here he's very Direct. You're in error, Sadducees, because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. I don't know everything there is to know, but I do know this. As religious leaders, it's pretty important to know the scriptures and to know the power of God. Can we all agree? The Sadducees are in error. And here Jesus makes it clear to know scripture is to know the power of God. And to know the power of God is to know the thrust of scripture. Scripture and the supernatural wedded together in Jesus' concept. Look, here at Exeter Valley Church, we believe and are contending for both the authority of Scripture and the power of God. We've seen in in Western society that sometimes our rationalist, materialistic mindset has separated these two things. You don't often find this in American churches, churches that are both committed to Scripture and pursuing the supernatural. We believe Jesus is clear here, that knowledge of his word is not in conflict with an experience of his power. And we want to be obedient to his words, and we want to be surrendered, surrendered to the power of his spirit. We want the Scriptures, and we want the supernatural But it would seem the Sadducees, they're not just wrong about denying the power of God. They're wrong about the scriptures they cling to. And Jesus is going to show them where. We have to be honest, I think, that, uh, you know, 
Our perspective is very easy in this Western society to deny either the power of God or the authority of Scripture. And I'm struck by this. Jesus just doesn't, he doesn't just condemn their biblical illiteracy here. He condemns their spiritual illiteracy. Do you know the power of God? Do we know the power of God? See, the problem here, as with the religious leaders, is that their ignorance is one of culpability, meaning they just don't want to know what they need to know. They've chosen ignorance. The Sadducees were biblically illiterate, but they were culturally literate. Remember, these leaders were Hellenistic. They were lovers of Greek literature. In fact, that was probably their real scripture. Their Greco-Roman standards ruled their lives. And this happens to us if we're not careful. We can get more caught up in culture than in scripture. We can be more influenced by a stream of cultural doctrine than we are the actual words of God. I think this is one of the connections that can be made between the passage that we studied about giving to Caesar what is Caesar and today's passage about the resurrection. I mean, what's the most influential voice in your life? To the Sadducees, it was Greek culture. To us, I don't know. What podcasts do you wrap yourself around? Is it Joe Rogan? Maybe it's CNN, Anderson Cooper, Tucker Carlson. I, d- I don't know. Who, who are the voices that have the most weight? Yeah, Colin Cowherd in my house. TikTok, YouTube, you get what I'm saying. We, we too are influenced by all kinds of things beyond the scope of skip Scripture. So not knowing the Scriptures is a big deal. Why is not knowing the Scriptures a big deal? Because it's tied to not knowing the power of God. Do you want to know the power of God? You've got to know the Scriptures. These two things go together. And we want to be a people here, a people of the power and a people of the Word of God. So because they do not know the power of God, they don't understand how resurrection will work. They've completely denied the supernatural. There's no resurrection. There's no angels. There's no spirits. And as a result, they misunderstand the meaning and purpose of eternity. And it's demonstrated in their question about marriage, which brings us to a profound mystery, as the Apostle Paul calls it in Ephesians 5. Verse 31, he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He goes on to say, This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So what does it mean when Jesus says the following? Look at verse 30. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. These are challenging words, maybe hard words, depending on what kind of marriage you have, I suppose. See, the Pharisees believed that resurrection life was exactly like this life, just a continuation of this life in the new creation. And the Sadducees believed that there was no resurrection at all. And Jesus addresses both errors in this one statement. See, there will be a resurrection. Jesus makes that clear. But not 
not as either of these two groups think it will be. He says that people will not be married in the resurrection. They will be like the angels. Not, not that they will become angels, but that people will be like angels, which is to say believers will be very different in heaven than they are here on earth. This can be hard for us to understand, but just think about what you were like when you were first conceived in your mother's womb. Have you ever seen the, the videos or like the ultrasounds even? Life looked a lot different at that point in time, didn't it? Well, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will also be a lot different. We will be transformed. And I think this is the goal of what Jesus is getting at in this passage. See, the goal of God in eternity is not angels or heaven, but a transformed humanity on a renewed earth. This is the hope that we have to look to. So what about marriage? And imagine the cultural context that Jesus would be speaking into, a a culture that valued marriage. Marriage was like a source of life. If you weren't married, you had a hard time living, probably. It was almost like a commandment that you would get married. So what is Jesus saying about marriage? Why is he saying that there's no marriage in heaven? I think it's actually most clear to say that the Bible uh, does teach that there is marriage in heaven, just not marriage between two people. There is a marriage in heaven that the Apostle Paul alluded to, the great profound mystery. The marriage that we'll have in heaven is between Christ and his church. If you want to read more about this, I have a book called um, Heaven by Randy Alcorn. It'd be a, it's a great book. I read it uh, when my parents died. Um, super helpful because you start to ask these questions. Well, like, well, what about my loved ones? You know, we, we take great hope that we'll be reunited with our loved ones in heaven. And so um, Alcorn says that uh, there will be relationships in heaven. We can fully expect to have relationships in heaven. We should expect to recognize one another. There just won't be marriage in heaven. Well, there will be, but it won't be between humans. It will be to Jesus. See, uh, there's evidence in scripture that after resurrection, people are still recognized. For example, at the transfiguration, we saw uh, Elijah come back, and there's a recognition of who Elijah was. Jesus was recognized by his followers uh, after his own resurrection. So we will recognize one another. We will still have relationships, but our relationships will not be primary except for one. Relationship with Jesus. So the folks who have put their faith in Jesus, the church, and we learn this in Matthew chapter 12, the who is my brother passage. The folks who have put their faith in Jesus are his eternal family. This is what Jesus is teaching. This is your family. This is just a a glimpse of your family. Your family is going to get bigger, and it's going to get more intimate, and it's going to get closer, and there won't be any weird squabbles about politics at the Thanksgiving table. And we can feel, in a way, like no marriage in the resurrection, like some of you are looking at me like I just said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You've got that look on your face. 
it's hard to think about this. We're, we, we love our spouses here on earth, and we can feel as if this is bad news, but it's not bad news, and I can guarantee you it's not bad news because there is no bad news in the resurrection to come. There'll be no more sorrow, no more death. So this has to be good news for us. If you had a rough week with your spouse, you're like tracking right with me at this point. You're like, I get it. I'm not married to this person. I get to be married to that person. This is a good thing. And then so, if you're like me, you know, you, you think about the thing you like most about marriage. And you're like, I'm not going to be able to do that in, in the resurrected life. What the heck is this, man? C.S. Lewis actually addressed this idea. <clears throat> I'm going to read his quote. I got two C.S. Lewis quotes uh, this morning. And uh, he said that I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who, on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure, should immediately ask whether you ate chocolates at the same time you had sex. On receiving the answer, no, he might regard absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of the sexual act between husband and wife. In vain, would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of? The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing which excludes it. We are in the same position when it comes to the resurrection. We know the life of marital and family relationships. We do not know, except in glimpses, the other thing, which in heaven will leave no room for it. We're troubled, as Lewis memorably puts it, not because the future reality is wanting. We're troubled because our imagination and our faith are weak and we don't know what we have to look forward to. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, there's something better to come. This is really good news, even if you love your spouse. Even though you love your spouse. My bad. Even though you love your spouse. We're uh, nearly out of time, so let's get to verse 31. Jesus adds to his statement about marriage in eternity. In eternity. Verse 31, now he's going in again about the resurrection. Verse 31, he says, But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. But about the resurrection, <laughs> Jesus says to them, Okay, I answered your silly little question about marriage, but let's get to the heart of it. Remember, this text isn't about marriage. It's about resurrection, life. It's about eternity. And so Jesus, for a second time, he defends the resurrection. This time, from the manner or the form of the resurrection, it's going to be transformational. It's going to be supernatural. And now to the matter of the resurrection, meaning to the scriptures, the scriptures are the truth that teaches us about resurrection. Jesus is saying it's like this, not like that, but like this. I've been told that's a good strategy for teachers. You show this is how it's done, not like this, but like this. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He says next, have you not read what God said to you? Now, who did the Sadducees say said something to them? Moses. And Jesus says, have you not read what God said to you? Here's what he means. 
The scriptures have not just been written to their original audience. They have been written to every audience. And this goes for all time. They've been written by God. And they've been written to you. The scriptures have been written by God to you in every time and place. This in of itself is supernatural. So the Sadducees, have, they've earlier quoted scripture by saying Moses said. And so here Jesus says, no, God says. And it can feel insignificant, like a little side note. But it's not. See, Jesus believes that the scriptures are authored by God. Do you believe that the scriptures are authored by God? These are God's words to you. God's words to Moses in Exodus 3. God's word to these Sadducees in Matthew 22. God's words to you and to me on September 17th, 2023. Scripture is authored by God and it's timelessly personal in its audience. And so Jesus quotes Exodus 3 here. Verse 31 is a, or, I'm sorry, verse 32 is a quote from Exodus 3. It's from the story of Moses. You've heard this story. It's the story of Moses and the burning bush. And when God comes to Moses, he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob. So who are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? If you want a great summary for who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are, you don't have to read the whole Old Testament, but you should. You could just go to Acts chapter 7 if you want the brief summary. Acts chapter 7. It's a good crash course in Hebrew history. But in a nutshell, Abraham is the father of the Christian faith. Isaac is his son. Remember, Isaac was the one that Abraham had to put on the altar and offer back to the Lord. Jacob is the son of Isaac, and Jacob is the father of the 12 patriarchs, right? The leaders of Israel's tribe. You know the 12 tribes. We got one of them here, Asher, tribe of Asher. He was named after one of the patriarchs. So this is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus is essentially saying, I am the God of your spiritual forefathers. Now, uh, that doesn't maybe feel like big news, but notice the present tense use of the words, I am. It's not, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's not even, I'm going to be again someday the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's I am, present tense. These guys appear to still be alive in Exodus 3. That's long after they've died. And yet God refers to them as still being alive. And this is what's so cool about what's happening right here, because where do we find the book of Exodus? If you don't know a lot about Bible memorization, I was talking about with Misty earlier about how I learned the Bible rap to help me. Uh, learn the books of the Bible. But Exodus is the second book. It's one of the first five. Jesus is using their scripture to teach them about the resurrection that they deny. Jesus is wicked smart. This is why we study the things that he taught. Wicked as in good. Sorry, that's, that's Boston lingo right there. Wicked smart. It's not just that they don't know the other scriptures. It's not just that they've made like Thomas Jefferson and cut out the scriptures that included miracles or the powerful acts of God. They don't even know their own scriptures. 
They claimed five, and they didn't even know them. So Jesus goes to Exodus to build common ground. He could have gone to the prophets. He could have gone to Isaiah 26. He could have gone to Daniel 12 to teach them about the resurrection, but instead he takes the battle to their own turf. We could, we could all learn something from the example of Jesus as it applies to our own apologetics. So, so Jesus won this little debate. We know he won because the final verse, verse 33, says that all the people were amazed. Pretty much the exact same thing that they said after he taught about giving to Caesar what was Caesar's and to God what is God's. Jesus wins this little debate with the Sadducees on the same day. He defeated the question of the imperial tax and the Pharisees and Herodians with it. But what's the take home? Nice little story about the resurrection. What's the take home for us today? Incredible question I thought you'd never ask. Here's the point. The life we live is just a pointer to the life we were made to live. The life we live here on earth is just a pointer to the one day life that we will live on the renewed earth. We were made to live in union with God. And we will one day do it. This is why no marriage, no big deal. We're married to Jesus forever, forever, ever, like a real forever. This is amazing news. And on the day that we enter eternity, married to Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You were made for perfect union with God. And we will spend eternity with him. And what will the scene look like? It will look like the most raucous worship service you've ever seen. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And and what will our lives look like? Our lives will be transformed. Sickness. Gone. Death. No more. We will be transformed like the angels, is what Jesus said. Some of us are swimming through really difficult stuff. There's transformation ahead. This is what we hold on to in the hope of the resurrection. We will be transformed. Enough of me saying it. Let's listen to the Apostle Paul describe resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the new living translation, because it says it super great. Verse 50, what I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. You've not been made for this kingdom. You've been made for another kingdom. Paul goes on, but let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. I don't know about you, I I hate secrets, I hate surprises, unless they're the right kind of surprises, right? I like a good surprise, a surprise that makes me happy, not one that I'm supposed to act excited about. Anyways, Paul says, let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. There's more to life 
than this life. I don't know what you're swimming with. Illness, injury, broken relationships, hard work, struggle, not enough. We will not all die, Paul says. We will all be transformed. There's a transformation coming, and it's more than meets the eye. Can I do that? Verse 52, it will happen in a moment, Paul says, in the blink of an eye when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed, for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die. The old prophetic word will come true. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? They've been swallowed up by Jesus, death, and resurrection. This is the hope that we hold on to. We will not all die. We will one day be transformed. Now, I can guess what you might be thinking. Maybe, I can guess. Not like in a Jesus kind of guess, but I, I could like guess, guess, like a real guess. What you might be thinking, you know, transformation is great and all. But I, I rather like the good things on earth. Anyone like kind of like the good things that earth has to offer. And maybe you're not sure about no longer being married to your spouse or being a mother or being a father or football or recreation or whatever your hobby is. Being out of your life. And if that's you this morning, uh, can I have permission to end with one more C.S. Lewis quote? This is what C.S. Lewis says about our desires and about beauty. He says, the books or the music or marriage or family or your hobbies in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in it. The beauty was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing desires. These things are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower that we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Friends, this morning, my invitation is to point us toward the one in whom there is no lack. He sent us news, news of a new country that we've yet to visit. And in this new country, there is promised resurrection life, fullness of joy. Imagine it. Perfect communion with the perfect God and his son Jesus, finally transformed into glorious beings. This is the meaning of resurrection life, that you will one day be transformed. Let's pray.
Hey, we're so glad you joined us, but don't forget to stay connected, either through our website, our social media, or the Church Center app. Or you know what? Better yet, come join us in person on a Sunday morning. See you soon.